This morning, since no one knows <laughs> what we're going to be preaching about, or Pastor Chuck will be preaching about, um, our scripture actually comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 17. Uh, you can find that in your pew Bibles on page 807. Again, our scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. I'll give you a moment to kind of flip through your device to get it up on your phone. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize any one of you except Crispus and Gaius. No, so no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. May God bless the reading of his word. This morning we actually have a special introduction right before Pastor Chuck preaches. Um, Elder Brian Che, who is also the coordinator of uh, the EEM leadership team, is going to come and share with us a little bit about the English pastoral search update. Brian. morning. It's great to see all of you here on this cold day. Uh, I grew up in Southern California, so on days like this, I often dream of going home. Uh, I'm sure that many of you would like to go somewhere warmer as well. Uh, fortunately, Chuck gets to do something about it. Uh, as m- most of you know, he's going to be retiring uh, from our midst uh, this coming June, and uh, he and Irene and their family are going to be moving over to Florida. Uh, so in the meantime, I just wanted to share an update uh, just in terms of what we've been doing as part of our search process uh, to find someone to come in uh, to succeed uh, Chuck. Uh, so uh, first off, uh, if we could go to the next slide. Uh, we formed a search committee. Uh, this started uh, last fall. Uh, as soon as uh, Chuck gave us uh, advance notice uh, that he was planning to retire, uh, we started to think about who we wanted to be able to uh, go ahead and search uh, for this process. Now, according to our church bylaws, uh, this is a decision solely at the discretion of the senior pastor, uh, Caleb, uh, uh, Pastor Caleb. Uh, but Pastor Caleb, uh, because he wants to make sure that uh, whoever comes in uh, is able to meet our needs, uh, he wanted to have very, very strong input and primary input from the English ministry in terms of what would we want and what are the needs that we consider as we go through the search process. Uh, and so these are the people that we've assembled onto the team. Uh, you can see that this is uh, headed by Pastor Caleb, uh, who, uh, as I mentioned, is the hiring manager, so to speak, according to our bylaws. Uh, but we also have uh, from the English ministry, uh, we have myself, we have Emily, and we have uh, Lauren uh, and Terry. Uh, and then we also have one additional elder uh, from the Chinese side. Uh, Elder Yiguan, uh, and this is uh, to help facilitate uh, making sure that whomever comes in will be able to work well with other aspects of our church as well. 
Uh, so uh, these are the committee members. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to, uh, just to approach any of us. Uh, what I wanted to do now is just to give an update in terms of what have we been doing as a committee uh, and what's the overall process that we're going through. Uh, so if we could go to the next slide. Okay. Uh, so as uh, most of you know, uh, last fall, uh, we started to meet with a lot of the different fellowship groups uh, to start to collect input in terms of what are the things that uh, you would be interested in in making sure that as we bring somebody in uh, that we would be able to uh, address particular needs that you see, uh, things that you think our church uh, does well, continues to need to focus on, uh, and so on. And we posted a job description. Uh, this is posted both on our own uh, website, and we've also started to go to uh, different uh, third-party uh, posting organizations uh, and started to ask advertise the fact uh, that we have uh, a posting here. Now, what we're doing uh, currently in the process is we've actually had uh, a relatively good number of people start to send in their applications, uh, and so our committee has been starting to go ahead and screen uh, these different applicants as they've been coming in. Now, the process that we want to go through is... Uh, Basically, uh, based on the feedback that you provided to us, uh, we've started uh, just to uh, present you know, a basic cutoff in terms of if a candidate applies, we ask for them to send us uh, their resume, a couple of samples of their preaching, uh, their uh, statement of faith, uh, and so on. And basically, uh, we set up a phone call just to figure out, okay, you know, is there a real potential opportunity? Uh, you know, if, uh, just to basically see, uh, you know, is there someone where it's really obvious that you know, either on their site or on our site is just not a good fit, uh, in which case uh, we don't proceed. Uh, most of these candidates, uh, assuming that they you know, make it past that initial phone screen, then what we're doing is we're coming in and bringing them to interview with uh, the entire committee. Uh, and so we're currently in the process of both phone screening and as well as advancing some of the candidates uh, into meeting with the overall committee. Now, we don't want to share with you any of the names that are coming through this uh, to protect uh, the privacy and the confidentiality of many of these applicants. As uh, you can imagine, you know, many of them are in serving in other ministries and other churches, and we don't want to disrupt uh, their lives in case things don't uh, work out either on their end or on our end. However, uh, once a candidate makes it through the full interview process, if it turns out that we happen to like one of them, uh, we're going to go through a serial uh, engagement where we will have one formal candidate at a time. Uh, and hopefully only one formal candidate, but then we will bring that candidate uh, to our church uh, for a physical visit uh, uh, over a weekend so that you will have the opportunity to meet with them, uh, to interact with the candidate, uh, to get to know them, ask questions, uh, hear them preach, and so on. We'll also have uh, him and come and meet with others at the church, uh, and that will be the official candidacy uh, at which point we will determine, you know, is this someone that we want to proceed with or not? Uh, based on that meeting, uh, we certainly want to collect all of your input uh, into that process. We will take it then back into the committee and ultimately uh, with Pastor Caleb and discuss uh, with him as well as the rest of the leadership uh, body here, including the Board of Elders, uh, do we want to proceed with this candidate or not, or do we want to go uh, and consider uh, one of the others. Uh, once we reach that point, uh, again, we're going to turn this into a serial process because we don't want to have you know, multiple people coming in and sort of competing uh, for the job, but really as the Lord leads and as uh, you know, we see fit, we want to bring in sort of one at a time uh, based on uh, you know, God's timing in this process. And so that's what uh, uh, you see sort of illustrated in uh, the color codes back here. Everything in blue is where we're currently at. This is a parallel process where we're just collecting different names and going through uh, the screening process. Uh, once we've actually 
actually identified a formal candidate, uh, then uh, this is uh, where we uh, transition to the red colors. Uh, we'll make the person known to you, and then we'll bring that uh, one individual in for a formal candidacy. Uh, so that's where we currently are. Uh, you know, we're uh, hopeful that we might be able to find someone in time uh, f uh, to come here by the time uh, Chuck does retire uh, later this summer. Uh, that's the goal that we're working with right now. Of course, uh, nothing can be certain, uh, but uh, as we go through this process, certainly as uh, we potentially identify a formal candidate, uh, we'll make that known to you. Uh, if we go to the next slide. Uh, so that's uh, in terms of where we are from an overall process standpoint. Uh, if you're interested in more information, uh, you can go to our church website. Uh, you've got the URL up there, uh, but this is where you can see the actual job posting if you're interested in reading the description uh, of candidates. Uh, if you happen to know anybody uh, that you think would be a good candidate, uh, I would encourage you them uh, to point them uh, to that URL so that they can formally apply. Uh, also, if you have any questions, if you have any comments, anything that you would like to discuss with the committee, uh, that's our... Uh, webs, uh, sorry, our email address uh, up there as well. Uh, so you can go ahead and email EPSC, that stands for English Pastor Search Committee at cbcgb.org. Thank you very much. Okay, so I asked the Pastor Search Committee to give us an update, just partly because it's useful to have updates, so we kind of keep thinking about this because it's going to happen but also partly because it ties in with today's passage in particular. Because in Corinth, they had gone through some pastoral transitions, in a way, like we're going to go through. Only the Corinthians didn't handle it well. And we want to learn from their mistakes so we can make sure that we do handle it well. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now... While you're turning to 1 Corinthians 1, oh, I will comment, you know, Brian has picked up right on this uh, temperature thing. Yesterday I was talking to a real estate agent in Florida by phone, and we haven't traveled down to look at it, but we saw a property we like online and wanted to see if we could get it for a price we like. And I mentioned that it was two degrees up here, and uh, maybe in an effort to get me to raise my bid, he said, well, it's 76 degrees down here, you know. <laughs> So, if you don't like the cold, I have sympathy for you. I'm actually going to do something about it. I'm moving. <laughs> but then, and you can call me anytime in July, August, and September. We'll be plenty miserable then. Well, because July and August are so hot, and then September, October are the hurricane months. So, you get some, you lose some, yeah. Now, just before we go into 1 Corinthians, let's, take, let's review where we've been. What we're looking at is the New Testament. Hello. Did we lose me? Okay. Uh, here. Because this is not working. Okay. Due to tech unforeseen technical difficulties. It's working now. Okay. Anyway, here we are. Oh, so what we've been looking at here, so the Old Testament gives us a, the sweep of what God is doing throughout history, and, and with the expectation that this will be culminated when the Messiah comes. And Jesus comes and says, look, I'm the Messiah. And all that stuff that the Old Testament said was going to happen, you know, the restoration of a world to a, to a pristine state of Eden and even beyond, all that stuff that the Old Testament said was going to happen, well, a bit of it happens, maybe half of it happened. But a lot of it didn't happen. 
And Jesus introduced a distinction that we hadn't anticipated in the Old Testament, a distinction between his first coming and his second coming, and basically some of it starts now, and, and the rest of it won't happen until the end of time. And so we're living in this curious in-between period. And the New Testament really describes for us what life is like in the in-between period, life in the meantime. So what we're going this semester is we're going through each of the books in the New Testament to capture a main theme, a central theme from each book, because it does two things for us. It helps us to capture what is the idea in this book, in this letter, in this piece of writing. And then it helps us to anticipate what our lives will be like, because we're still pretty much in the same situation they were in. We're still living in between time, in between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And so we saw from the book of Acts that really we have one overriding mission in this in-between time. And our one overriding mission, our highest priority of all, is that everybody should hear the gospel. Particularly those who haven't heard it. Those who have no access to it. So really, the book of Acts, the entire book of Acts, is an argument to prioritize reaching the unreached. And then we saw from the book of Thessalonians that really becoming a Christian gives us a community to be part of, but it also kind of pulls us out of this wider community because done right, Christians live differently than the world. Sometimes in the sense of the culture wars, as Emily was praying about, Sometimes we create unnecessary culture wars, like is going on in American politics now. Some of those culture wars are necessary. A lot of them are unnecessary. But anyway, First Thessalonians reflects on what is it like for Christians to live within a culture that they're not really fully part of? And how, how will life be? What will life be like for us in that situation? Then Second Thessalonians touches on this issue that comes back periodically. And it happened as early as the early church. It happened again in the year 1000. It certainly happened as the year 2000 was coming. Is And trying to anticipate when is Jesus coming back. And all these grand schemes for reading the times, you know, reading the newspaper and reading the Bible and trying to get them to correlate. And when is Jesus coming back? And Second Thessalonians said, look, don't worry about when Jesus is coming back. Focus on being ready for him when he comes back by living the way he calls us to. Then we saw from the book of Galatians, highly relevant to our current situation, was the implications. Galatians is, is about salvation, but not just about salvation. It's about salvation and then community. How do we live together? What are the social implications of the fact that Christ came to die for all of us? What are the implications of that? for race and for ethnicity and for socioeconomics. And so we looked at that. Now, 1 Corinthians, we're going to spend a few weeks in looking through 1 Corinthians because it's a much longer book than most, and it deals with several different issues, one after another, or issues that are still current today. But all of the issues tie together with this. One theme, you could say, a continuity that runs throughout all the issues is the Corinthians had not yet managed to separate enough from their culture. Now, this is true of us, particularly those of you who have only ever lived in one culture. If you were born and raised in America, I remember when I came back after four years overseas, my first sin overseas, I came back and served in a uh, Chinese church in the area. 
among second gen, you know, congregation like ours. And I'd been overseas for four years, so some of my values and exposures had changed. And I came back here and I thought, you know, some, some of the people in the church I was serving in were more American than Americans, even though they were second gen Asian American. You know, and that's not to even consider what it's like for Caucasian that we grew up in this culture. All of us, without being aware of it, we bring our culture into the church. We bring our culture with us when we become Christians. And maybe Christ changes a few things right away, but a lot of stuff we don't know needs changing. And so clearly the Corinthians had brought their culture, Greco-Roman culture, into the church. Because all of the things that are going on in the church of Corinth that Paul is correcting, all of these things were going on in Greco-Roman culture at the time. And Paul says, look, you're Christians now. You know, it doesn't change everything. It doesn't change the language we speak, for example. We don't have to worship in Latin. But it changes a lot of things, and, and some that we're not so aware of. Now, you happen to go overseas, and you see how some other culture does things, and, and your first response when you go overseas and see how some other culture does things is to say, boy, they really got it wrong. This is, this is dumb. But after a little time, you begin to realize, well, it, it works for them. So maybe there's just different values that come into play. And then if you see how things work in Asia, you see how things work in America, then you begin to ask, from the Bible's perspective, how should things work? Like the American way? Like the Asian way? Or like a third way? Now, the first issue they deal with in Corinth is the issue, basically, of pastoral transitions. Here's what's happened. The Apostle Paul came to Corinth. He preached the gospel. He stayed with them for 18 months. For Paul, this is mega long trip, long stay. You know, Thessalonica, we're not even sure he stayed there more than three weeks before he got chased out of town. But Corinth was the first time he was able to settle down and be somewhere for 18 months. He invested, invested a lot in this church. But then he left to go on because he was really a frontier missionary. His first goal was the goal of the book of Acts, he, missions to the unreached. And then other teachers passed through. In particular one we know of, Apollos came to the city of Corinth. And the Corinthians really liked Apollos. And they did what everybody did in Greco-Roman culture at that time. You see, they did not have rock bands. Okay? No amplifiers, you know, no amplification, no electricity. They couldn't have rock bands. What they had was traveling philosophers. Oh, I should add also this. They were a bit, well, no. They were a lot deeper thinkers than we are today, right? We want video. We want media, multimedia. They were actually inclined to sit around and discuss philosophy at their dinner parties. So a philosopher would come into town, he'd go into the, the agora, the marketplace, he'd go in the central marketplace, and he'd start teaching his whatever his, you know, he'd give a short teaching to attract a crowd. And then he'd go off into a special hall set up for teachers to expound, and he'd start teaching. And then he'd charge fees, or he would tutor the wealthy people's kids, or whatever, he'd make money doing this. So when Paul comes into the city, he goes into the central part of town, and he starts preaching the gospel. People, people understand this. He's a philosopher. They did not distinguish between philosophy and theology. Paul's a traveling philosopher. He teaches, and then after a while, he goes privately and starts teaching more intently with a small group of students. They understand. Paul's a traveling philosopher. 
traveling theologian. Well, then Paul leaves town and then Apollos comes in. And, and they see Apollos and they, they know what's going on. Paul, Apollos is a traveling philosopher. He goes in the center, he teaches, and then he goes and teaches more closely with some other people. And they know the paradigm here. They've got a pre-existing Greco-Roman paradigm which says that these traveling preachers and philosophers and theologians will come through. You'll listen to them and evaluate them. And then you'll decide which ones you like best. And so, Paul came into town. Apollos came into town. And they did what all Greco-Roman people do. They evaluated and decided which one we like best. And oddly to our minds, they decided they liked Apollos best. Even though Paul invested 18 months of his life there, they decided Paul really wasn't very good. Apollos, he's the guy we want. Now, here's the striking feature. If you read the book of Acts just a little bit carefully, you'll realize that the author of the book of Acts, Luke, he agrees. Apollos was a better preacher than Paul. So let's take a look at how this plays out in 1 Corinthians 10, to, well, 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17. Notice, first of all, in, in verse 10, there's an exhortation to unity. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you. So you see they're, they're, they're at war. There's a, there's a conflict among them. What's the conflict about? Or verse 12. My brothers and sisters, some of you from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Verse, sorry, verse 12. What is it about? It's competition. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. Still another says, I follow Christ. And then Paul has to deal with this, this issue of a competition, their perception of competition between the multiple speakers they've had. And the criterion of the competition is in verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Do you see Paul puts in this theme of wisdom here? Because this is the issue of contention between them. Who's the more profound speaker? Who's the more thoughtful preacher? They didn't want pyrotechnics. They wanted thought, profundity, eloquence, oratory. And by Greco-Roman standards, Paul was inferior. You see, Greco-Roman time, they were far inferior to us in technology. But they are light years beyond us in oratory in philosophical speculation and proclamation. We still have rhetorical handbooks still in existence from the first century. Most of their education was in rhetoric, a six-volume rhetorical handbooks, handbooks I've read but I can't remember the detail of. I mean, I haven't read them all, the six volumes, right? But I've read a good chunk of them. They made this an art form. And what's more important than the gospel? So if you're going to preach the gospel, you're going to put in a... a Attractive art form. And Paul wasn't rhetorically sophisticated. Maybe in Jewish circles he was, but not in Greco-Roman. 
And so they're arguing about it. And Paul says, Paul has to defend himself. Christ did not send me to baptize, but he sent me to preach the gospel. And when I preach the gospel, I don't use wisdom and eloquence. So that was the issue between them, was particularly how you preach the gospel. But the broader issue between them, the one we want to look at this morning is, what do you do in a church like ours, where you have multiple pastors? In a culture like ours, where you tend to compare those pastors. Oh, this is the pastor I think is the best. Or this is the one who's most devoted. Or this is the one who's the best preacher. Or this is the one who's warmest in pastoral care. Or this is the one that you know knows my family the best. And, and we choose up sides. Or, or not in a church. What I have to do with in a time like ours. When one pastor leaves and another pastor comes in and we have a pastoral transition. In our culture, the natural thing to do is choose who we like best. And so Paul responds to this. He spends the first two chapters diffusing the issue of wisdom. But then in chapter 3, he comes back to the issue of uh, competition between the pastors. So let's flip over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What God said to them. Notice Paul starts in 3, 1 to 4. Brothers and sisters... I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit. Maybe in your verses, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as carnal or worldly people. See, the Corinthians took great pride in their spirituality. They had the Spirit. They spoke in tongues. They had prophecy, maybe healings. They took great confidence and pride in their possession of the Spirit. And Paul says, look, why wasn't I profound when I came to you? He said, I couldn't be profound, spiritually profound. Because you couldn't handle it, because you're worldly. You're carnal. You're pagan. How are they pagan? Verse 3 and 4. Are you not acting like mere human beings? For when one of you says, I follow Paul, and another one says, I follow Apollos, are you not human beings, mere human beings? You see what the point is? He says, look, the minute you do this, you're doing just what the world does. You're comparing between your pastors or your preachers. That's just like what the world does. For example, right? Now, who's better? Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, or Cam Newton? <laughs> you... You, you know, Peyton Manning just won. <laughs> Cam Newton, MVP. Tom Brady, Tom Brady's got more rings than both the Mannings combined. All right. But isn't this what we immediately do? Who's the best quarterback? Because this is, there's, I don't know, 32 or 34. Anyway, there's a lot of quarterbacks out there. We want to know who's the best. There's a lot of pastors out there. We want to know who's the best. We do that with our bands. We do that with restaurants. We do that with quarterbacks. We do that with preachers and pastors. The Corinthians did that. And Paul says, what you're doing is you're importing the world's values into the church. That's worldly. That's pagan. Second thing Paul says, chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? We're only servants. We're agents through whom you came to believe. As the Lord assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it. But it's God who really makes it effective. 
You don't praise the farmer. You praise God who gave this life to the seed and causes it to grow. Verse 7, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Paul's saying it makes no sense to praise one preacher or one pastor over another because they're only servants through whom God chooses to work, through, well, servants whom God calls to a particular function, through whom God chooses to work. The, the purpose of the servant is not to glorify himself, but to glorify the master. Paul says, there's no point saying you think Paul is better than Apollos, or you think Paulus is better than Paul, or that you think Peter or Cephas is the best of all, or that, oh, you're part of the Jesus clan. None of this makes any sense, he says. Because we don't exist to draw attention to ourselves or to serve ourselves or to magnify ourselves. We exist to honor God. Then he goes on to a third response in chapter 3, verses 8 to 9. The one who plants and the one who waters, they have all, all one purpose. Paul says, Apollos and I are not competitors. We're colleagues working together. The one who plants, the one who waters, have one purpose, and they, they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. We are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field and God's building. You know, Paul's point here is, it's not really the role of a congregation or recipients of ministry to figure out which pastor or which preacher they like the best or who is the best. That's not what God has set up here. What God has set up is workers, pastors, and preachers to serve the church and to point the church to Christ, who then gets the glory. What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? What is Pastor David? What is Pastor Chuck? Only servants, instruments through whom you come to believe. God assigns each his task. One plants and other waters, but it's God who makes it grow. Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God, the God who makes things grow. And so together we have one purpose. We're not competitors or rivals. We're colleagues. Verse 8, they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. It's really not up to a congregation to reward pastors. It's up to God. God will ultimately decide who has done well and hasn't. So it's not up to the congregation to need to do that. God will handle that. The, the pastors are merely co-workers serving God in the lives of the congregation. Paul says the crucial feature here is the congregation. You are God's field, God's building. And pastors are merely servants. And finally, he says in verses 10 to 17, that the whole issue of evaluating pastors and deciding who's better or who's worse, and evaluating preachers deciding who's better or who's worse, that this whole issue really reverses the evaluation process. Because Paul says in verse 10, I've done a good job in my own eyes, but God will evaluate me later. Now the people who are working there should build with care. But then he goes on to alert the Corinthians that eventually God will evaluate them. And what they must be careful of is splitting the church as they evaluate their pastors and prefer one or another. They must be careful about splitting the church because, verse 16, you yourselves are God's temple. God's spirit dwells in your midst. 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred. Paul warns the Corinthians that all of us will appear before God for evaluation. So we don't have to decide who the best pastors and preachers are now because God will decide that at the end of time when he rewards. What we have to do is look to ourselves and what we're doing because God will not just reward pastors and preachers at the end of time. He'll reward or discipline all of us. So my job is not to say, who's doing a good job? My job is only to say, am I doing a job that God will reward at the end of time? How does this all come into play as we look at bringing on a new pastor? Every pastor will have certain strengths and certain weaknesses. And what the pastor search committee really needs to do now is try the best of their understanding and with the guidance of God and the Spirit and Scripture and, and hoping for the best. What we need to do is, you know, here's the life of the church and here's the gifts of this particular pastor. Now, the leading church marketing, no, no, the leading church management expert makes this point. He makes a list of 12 things that people commonly want from a pastor. And of those 12, he says you can really legitimately ask for three. And you've got to cut three right off of the list. Three that they'll be good at, six that they'll be mediocre, barely passing at, and three that they'll be totally hopeless at. And he says the problem is, in any church, the church doesn't agree on those three or on those six. So when a pastor comes in, people say, oh, well, this is what I want. And then somebody else will say, this is what I want. And, and everybody's individual expectations are okay. But when you add them all together, it's just a, nobody can do all that. They don't have those 12 gifts. No one person will have those 12 gifts. You can go further. La Shallow doesn't point out that some of those gifts are mutually exclusive. Some people are task-oriented, and some people in the congregation will want a task-oriented pastor who can get it done. But others, those who are task-oriented, are typically not people-oriented. But some people will look for somebody who is people-oriented and can work well, be warm, and you can really generally can't get the both accomplished. So there's a, a number of criteria we could be looking for and could make anybody's life difficult. Paul also warns about this sort of thing. By now, you should be familiar with what my strengths are and what my weaknesses are. The danger is, in any pastoral transition process, is that you'll hire somebody who can make up for my weaknesses, at the, which is a sound strategy. At the same time, you'll expect him to have my strengths. And a new guy coming in can't do it. If he can do 25% of the job, pastoring job well, then you've done well. 50% uh, of it mediocre, and, and another 25% of it he does poorly, you've got a good pastor. But what you'd never want to do is say, our former pastor did this well, and you don't. Always feel free to say, well, almost feel free to say, our former pastor did this poorly, and you do it well. You can tell him that. It still makes it a little bit carnal, according to you know, 1 Corinthians. But at least it's a better way of being carnal than to say the other, right? We're going to have a transition coming up. And hopefully, on average, the new fellow coming in will do a better job than I've done. But what you don't want to do is make that judgment yourself. God will do that. What you don't want to do is look for him to do everything well that I've done well and then do everything well that I haven't done well. 
What you want to do is have some common understanding with the search committee. What are you looking for? And then staff or serve for his weaknesses. So that together the ministry of this church is not dependent on the one pastor, but it's this community serving together and a pastor doing a piece of that and taking the lead in it. Let's pray together. Father, this is an interesting and motivating and exciting time in the life of this church. Certainly a significant time in the life of this church. We pray that you'd be at work through the search committee and through us as a community as we make this transition to new pastoral staff, that we might succeed where the Corinthians struggled, that we might do a better job than they did because we looked at their mistakes and avoided them. We ask you to be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.